Welcome to the Bone Coach Show, dedicated to helping you understand all things related to diet, lifestyle, bone health, and how you can live and thrive with low bone density and osteoporosis. I'm your host, Kevin Ellis, certified health coach, health and wellness speaker, and above all else, your bone coach. After being diagnosed with osteoporosis in my early 30s, I transformed my health through diet and lifestyle and now help my clients and community members do the same through my online coaching practice, Bone Coach. Com. Look, there are no quick and easy cures for low bone density, but the choices we make every single day can have a powerful impact on our bones, our health, and our general well-being. I'll share the research, interview the experts, and help you figure out how to get the conditions right in your body so you can better your bones through diet and lifestyle. Short disclaimer, I'm not a medical doctor and this show should not be considered medical advice. Always consult with your healthcare team before making medical decisions and changes to your diet and lifestyle. With that being said, let's get on with the show. You know, we know that Lyme's a tissue organism, right? So you get bit, goes in your cell uh, skin, and then it disseminates through your blood. But then it likes to go hide in our soft tissue. So some of the later stage stuff we're getting are like a lot of the cognitive stuff, a lot of the gut stuff, any kind of soft, squishy thing in your body. But then the other thing we know about is like, it loves the car's arthritis within the joints. It can break down the cartilage, that cushion in your joints. And arthritis is like this thing that everybody says when you talk about bone health. And then there's also another infection that you can get from the same tick called babesiosis, which is more like malaria. But what's interesting is so it lives in your red cells and it can break them and you get fever, chills, sweats and all kinds of weird stuff. But what's interesting is it hangs out in the bone marrow because the red cells are there and it can lead to immune suppression. If you haven't done so already, especially if you're newly diagnosed with osteopenia or osteoporosis, or if your most recent bone density scan still showed more bone loss, go ahead and pause this episode and head over to bonecoach.com to sign up for your free seven day osteoporosis kickstart guide. That's going to give you everything you need step by step by step over the next seven days to get on the path to improvement and stronger bones. You won't want to miss that. So pause this right now, head over to bonecoach.com and I'll be here as soon as you get back. Welcome, welcome to this episode of the Bone Coach Show. Joining us today to explore Lyme disease, mycotoxins, mold and osteoporosis is Dr. Tom Moorcroft. Dr. Tom treats some of the sickest, most sensitive patients suffering from chronic Lyme disease, tick-borne co-infections, mold illness, as well as children with infection-induced autoimmune encephalitis, PANS, PANDAS. He focuses on optimizing the body's healing systems in order to achieve optimal health with simple, natural interventions, utilizing more conventional approaches when needed. Each individual is a unique unity of body, mind, and spirit. He's the creator of the Thrive with Lyme Blueprint, which assists those suffering with Lyme and related illnesses, tap into the true source of radiant health within them and optimize healing. He also teaches practitioners how to easily and effortlessly excel at treating patients with complex chronic illnesses in his Lyme disease practitioner certification and mentorship program. Dr. Tom's goal is to empower each of his patients to get in touch with their inner source of health so they can experience optimal health. Dr. Tom, welcome to the show. Hey, Kevin, thanks so much for having me. It's a true honor to be here. And I'm really excited to, you know, kind of shed some light on this uh, crazy disease and complex of things for your audience. Yeah. I think this is a really important topic. We haven't touched too much on Lyme in other episodes or, or discussions before. And I know that a lot of people come to you when they just can't figure it out, when they're really sick, they've got really complex things going on. They're coming to you. How did, how did it get to that point? How did you become the go-to person in this area of Lyme disease and, and mycotoxins and mold? And people are now seeking you out for that. Yeah. You know, I was, I had just gotten out of my residency. I was setting up a private practice and my goal was to be an osteopath who did traditional hands-on manipulation. And I sat down and I was like, wow, I'm going to like do some structural work, maybe recommend some vitamin D and some good diet, but mostly just focus on kind of getting paid to meditate, if you will, like help other people's bodies open up and, and ignite that self-healing within them and kind of be the catalyst for moving some of the structural things and maybe some of the emotional blockages that might get in the way. And there was one day I like put my hands on this um, woman. And thankfully my mentors were always like, put your hands on people, feel what a medicine feels like, feel what cancer feels like, feel what heart disease, just really learn all you can. So you have a really big kind of tool belt of understanding and I put my hands on this woman and 
I really was like, you're infected. This feels like an infection and it doesn't feel like what I usually feel in the hospital. Um, and I was like, I, you know, I was just kind of had the sense that she probably had Lyme. So I ordered some Lyme testing, came back positive and I didn't know who to send her to. And I was like, I know. So then what I remembered though, was when I was younger, I had got bitten by a tick, had a big old rash. My boss found me staring at a wall, drooling on myself one day. I was like, dude, you got to go to the doctor. Right. And he gave me a, a treatment, you know, doxycycline is a common antibiotic used for this. He gave that to me for about 10 days and said, I'd be good to go. Well, I was good to go for about two or three months, at least in retrospect. But then I kind of had like, you know, brain fog and fatigue and joint pain creep in over the years. And then because more and more, I went to so many doctors and they didn't know what was going on. I was kind of getting irritated at them. Then they're like, oh, I know you're depressed. And I was like, uh, okay, but not really. I'm just in pain and you don't know how to help me, but sure. I'll try your meds. All they did, they didn't help. They gave me side effects. Then somebody comes up with this crazy thing. Oh, you know, cause now we're years and years into this, like, you know, and I'm in medical school and they're like, oh, well, all the good, you know, I think you have bipolar type two because all the good doctors and lawyers, you know, who need that hyper focus at times or have bipolar. I'm like, I thought it was ADHD, you know? And then, so they tried the meds there, a lot of side effects. I had some kidney side effects from it that lasted for a really long time. And so I was just like, come on. Then they're like, you have ADHD. And I'm like, well, I knew that already. That's my superpower. And a cup of coffee helps me with that. So you're full of crap. And then ultimately I went to my primary after about six years. And I said, dude, I'm suffering so much right now and no one can help me. I really feel like I'm at my last straw. Can you please help me? And he said, sure, no problem. I got you. What do you got? And I go, I've got brain fog, joint pain and fatigue. And I'm a little pissed off because nobody's been able to help me for the last six years. And he goes, oh, I got it. You've got fibromyalgia. I'm like, all right, dude, you just diagnosed me with a, syn a syndrome that says I have joint pain, brain fog and fatigue. We don't know what causes it and we don't know how to give to help you get better. So here, try some of the meds you've already tried. And so at this point, my back was against the wall. And I remember, Kevin, I was I was in my apartment once again, staring at a blank wall. This time I wasn't drooling on myself, but I was like, I saw this path right where I was going down this path. And it was the same one that I was going down. I'd been doing it for six years and I knew where that was going to end. And I said, but I want to be, you know, I just had gotten married. I want that to be great. Eventually we probably want to have a family. I love playing outside with my dogs. I love Frisbee. I love mountain biking, love skiing and hiking. I just want to play outside because ultimately I was playing outside and teaching kids about outside when I got sick. And in the long run, I just said, you know what? I have two choices. I can do the same path I've been doing and that's not going to work. Or I could double down on my future. I don't know how I'm going to get there, but I know what I want. And there's this little crack in my heart. I felt my heart go passion. That's what I want to be doing in the future. And I went for it. And within a couple of days, maybe a week, somebody handed me a yoga DVD. And then, so I started on the yoga and it was the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life. Cause I could barely touch my knees at this point. I had so much you know, fascial and muscle contraction, but ultimately I worked through the process. I got myself about 70% better over the next two years. And then there was a coincidence in my life that happened where I could go to a change of rotation in medical school. I went to an office of these, a naturopath and, a, and an osteopath who act, everybody I saw was like me. And for all of a sudden, even though I st 70% better, I was still suffering with that. La and I couldn't get that last 30. And at the end of the day, I'm like, Whatever these people have, they're my community, they're my tribe. What do they have? Because I need to know, and I need to know if I have it. And two weeks later, after they did a bunch of labs on me and I spent a crap ton of money, I found out that I had Lyme disease and they are still, and they had missed a babesiosis diagnosis, which is another tick-borne illness similar to malaria that could have actually killed me. You know, at this point, it's eight years before, but they completely didn't even think about it and missed it. So thankfully I was all right. They helped me over the next four and a half years get better. And as we talk today, I've been over 12 years symptom free. So if you want to know, so when I felt that girl and I got her lab results, I was like, I don't know what to do for you for sure, but I know the people who can help me learn how to do it. And I run on a mission to help reverse this because we found out that you know, I mean, this is the number one vector born or sort of like, you know, kind of insect gives you a bite and gets you sick illness in the entire country. 
We have over 476,000 new cases each year. And of those, probably somewhere in the neighborhood based on the research of about 22% of people are not fixed with a single course of treatment. And they're having symptoms over six months after that. And so I just dedicated my life to helping those people. That's a that's an amazing story. And it's interesting that you can remember the exact point in time when that happened, what set you down this path, and then your own healing journey. And you know, I'm just happy you're here and able to help all these people. So for for Lyme disease, our audience may not even be familiar with it. They may have yeah. heard of it, but not not really understand what it is. So maybe could we walk through what is Lyme disease? How do you get it? How do you know if you have it? Yeah, it's a great question. So there's a whole bunch of different ticks, you know, type of like, it's essentially kind of like an arachnid, you know, that bites you, right? We, we People have heard of deer ticks, dog ticks, maybe a lone star tick. Uh, the deer tick, also known as a black-legged tick, is in this group called the Ixoides ticks. In the United States, there's really about three of them that are common that can bite and transmit um, what we call Borrelia burgdorferi, which is the infect, it's a bacteria, and some people have heard of it. It's a spiral bacteria. They go to a spirochete that can cause Lyme. And basically, if you get bit by one of these deer tick or deer tick variants, they carry a couple of infections. The number one being Lyme disease, right? Or this Borrelia burgdorferi that causes Lyme. Most people, I think, in medical school and the general public know it is like. Hey, most of the ticks are out in the summer. If you get a summer flu where you have fatigue, joint pain, brain fog, aches and pains, muscles hurt, you know, um, maybe you get a headache. That's kind of what most people go to their doctor for. One of the telltale signs is a thing called an erythema migrans rash. And this, um, a lot of people have heard of a bullseye rash. Problem is, of all the erythema migrans rashes out there, only about 30% of the the this em rash that we refer to is a bullseye the rest of them are more like purple red splotches they could have five or six splotches and they're very variable um they fall within a group that your doctor should be able to figure out but even a lot of doctors are just looking for a bullseye so we're missing upwards of 70 percent of the true lyme rashes which is the number one diagnostic indicator way better than tests way better than any symptom to, to just be slam dunk the other problem with the rash, Kevin, is that the rash, you only get about 50% of people get it, right? And so on the CDC website, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, they say about 70% of people get a rash. But if you actually read the medical literature, it's closer to 50%. So if you're only half the people get a rash, then we have to go, we have to look at your symptoms. And, you know, I mean, brain fog, fatigue, joint pain, achy, maybe a little fever, a little headache. Boy, that sounds like almost everything out there, right? So it's really vague at times. So when someone comes in like that, if they have a rash, it helps us a lot. If they have a history of a tick bite, it helps us. The problem just from a perspective of the tick, about 5% of people get it from mama tick, right? And deer ticks of all the ticks in the United States are the smallest. And the mama is like, you know, got a little black dot and then she has a, a, a kind of a red back end to her. So it sticks out a little bit. She only trans she transmits about 5% of all Lyme disease. Her babies, the nymph, is the size of a poppy seed. So if you think about a poppy seed, pretty darn small, that transmits about 95% of the cases of known Lyme. And it's probably because it's so small, it's like a noceum. So when you look at the data, only about 50% of people remember a tick bite. So 50% of people remember a tick bite, 50% of people have a rash. So now our odds of figuring this out are getting a little more complicated, right? A little lower. So then we have those symptoms. And if we have some of those basic symptoms, we may, if we have a high suspicion, we may treat someone. Otherwise, if we're not so sure, then we have to rely on testing. And unfortunately, our testing is not as great as we'd like it because it relies on your immune system. And the longer you have Lyme, the more immune system uh, suppression you get. But that's kind of the basics of acute Lyme disease. The people that I see are often the people who are missed, right? So they're going to come in with fatigue, poor stamina. They might have some muscle weakness. You know, a lot of that like, hey, like I'm 27 years old and I have morning stiffness, right? It's not like I'm 95 and I have morning stiffness, you know, and they, they get the muscle aches, the joint pains. One of the really big things for everyone to recognize is that when you talk about joint pain, 
Lyme disease is one of the few things on the planet that will cause migrating joint pain. So I've got pain in my wrist and then I've got in my elbow. Oh, now it's my other shoulder. Now it's a knee. Now it's a hip. So if you have, that's one of the, there's very few things that do that. So that's a telltale sign because, you know, then we have all these other kind of symptoms that they, they call um, Lyme the next great imitator. And it may, basically imitates like it's documented over 300 other medical conditions. So the rest of the symptoms can get confusing, but you know, the big things for me, if somebody wants to have a starting point without getting too confusing, fatigue and stamina, you have a lot of brain stuff, you know, cognitive executive function stuff, and then joints and muscles. Now you can have weird stabbing things and headaches, but that's extra. And then I guess the one last point for the intro to some of this is kids typically present differently. They can't describe the same symptoms that you or I can. So then they also have more of the neuropsychiatric thing that we can dive into if we want to. But if you see a kid who's like, has an acute regression, school performance, emotional control, the bedwetting, even like out of the blue, you know, it could be Lyme or one of these other infections as well. Really, really interesting. I know you see people with chronic Lyme, right? Before, from the time they get the bite to the time they get to somebody who has chronic Lyme, what does the progression of Lyme look like if it's not treated? Yeah. So when you look at the regular kind of teachings, we get kind of early localized Lyme, you know, you might have a joint, you might just have the rash, you might have a little ache and pain, but nothing big. Then they talk about, you know, early disseminated where you start to get sort of broader symptoms more throughout the body of any of the symptoms we talked about. And then as time goes on and they, you know, they, they feel that this is going to be two to four weeks after the infection to maybe two to four two maybe two and a half months afterwards. If it goes further than that, we can get um, late, you know, disseminated disease. And that's where you're getting really like the arthritis more than neurologic and cardiac stuff that people have heard about. And what's really interesting is Lyme is really known in the late stage to lead to arthritis. So people have studied this. And they said, one of the problems we run into is that like all the, all the big medical groups out there, CDC, the Infectious Disease Society of America say about 80% of people who get Lyme and get diagnosed and treated early and they get 10 to 21 days of antibiotics are going to be cured. But then when you ask what happened with the other 20%, there's kind of like crickets, right? And so Johns Hopkins researchers did some work and they um, artificially uh, infected ticks and then they let the tick feed on a mouse. And then so they artificially essentially infected these mice. And with that, they found that about 80% of them would get what they would call late persistent Lyme disease, which in regular, what we just talked about would be that late disseminator, right? That's this, you got, you got sick, it was either not diagnosed or it was undertreated. And now you've got these late stage like arthritis and all these other nasty symptoms. But what they also found was about just shy of 20% of the mice would get what they're calling early persistent Lyme. So they would actually within, you know, a couple of weeks of infection, get this Lyme arthritis. So there's a group of people who get early Lyme disease who just get it like we've heard in the news. It's not a big deal or easy to treat, catch it early, treat it. But then we also have another group that are actually getting really kind of late stage symptoms early. And what's what the reason I bring this up is this to me is really nice because what we have is two camps saying Lyme is easy to is hard to get and easy to treat. And we have the other group that say it's easy to get and hard to treat and they're fighting. But the truth is they both probably have some part of the truth that's accurate. So it's not like one or the other. It's a yes. And and so for people out there, I don't want to scare them and think everybody gets chronic Lyme because they don't. And, but there are people who do, and you can get really early symptoms of it. And I think to me, when I can see there's more than one side of the truth, there's multiple things going on and a lot of research to help them. It gives you hope for actually getting better. Before we get into the specifics around chronic Lyme, let's talk about the impact on our health. And specifically, if you want, if you have anything you want to bring in, in terms of the impact on our bone health or any connection to osteoporosis. Let's talk about that for a second. Yeah, you know, this is awesome because, you know, we know that Lyme's a tissue organism, right? So you get bit, goes in your cell uh, skin, and then it disseminates through your blood, 
but then it likes to go hide in our soft tissue. So some of the later stage stuff we're getting are like a lot of the cognitive stuff, a lot of the gut stuff, any kind of soft, squishy thing in your body. But then the other thing we know about is like, it loves the car's arthritis within the joints. It can break down the cartilage, that cushion in your, your, your um, joints. And, and arthritis is like this thing that everybody says when you talk about bone health. And then there's also another infection that you can get from the same tick called babesiosis, which is more like malaria. But what's interesting is, so it lives in your red cells and it can break them and you get fever, chills, sweats, and all kinds of weird stuff. But what's interesting is it hangs out in the bone marrow because the red cells are there and it can lead to immune suppression. But that's kind of the extent of what most people think about with Lyme and Babesia in, in terms of bone health. So, but what I found really interesting, I, I was able to find one study where um, people started to look more directly at this. And this is in 2017. So, I mean, fairly recently, people started looking, they, in a mouse model, they were actually able to find that if you were to infect the mouse with Lyme and look at the bone, you could find the, the long bones, like the femur and the tibia, so that the upper leg bone and the lower leg bone, as well as the fifth lumbar, you could actually find that the bones got infected with Lyme disease. And then what they found was a decrease in bone mineral density within those areas, more um, clear in the femur, and in the tibia, a little less clear in the vertebra in L5. But what they said was it was more an artifact of all the muscle around L5 and how small the mouse was than for sure not being equal. So it was a little less, but it was certainly way different than a baseline. And what they found was it didn't really change like our osteoblasts that are doing the building and the osteoclasts that are doing the breakdown. It, so we weren't having like more you know, resorption of bone. But what they found was um, there was a really high level of a lot of these, what we call inflammatory cytokines. They're just things in your body that signal your body to create inflammation. And we see this in chronic Lyme in general and, and many infections that aren't treated early is we want acute infection to heal, or, or excuse me, uh, acute inflammation in order to heal. But on the flip side, we don't want chronic inflammation because then that's immune suppressive and it breaks down things. And so what we really found was what they're saying is that these inflammatory markers being high, they were able to show led to suppression of new osteoblasts being created or oste osteoblastogenesis, which I, they, <laughs> if you want to get crazy words here. So the idea is the where we're kind of creating new bone, we're preventing those cells from being created. So we weren't destroying the actual pieces of the system that were making the bone or breaking it down in an optimal, normal way, but we were preventing new ones from being created. So as the old osteoblasts kind of died off, and when you look at the pictures, it's pretty dramatic how much... You know the, how much osteoporosis they caused, and it was specific to that trabecular bone that led to the really the um, you know to the structural support within the system. So it's really interesting, and I I really would love to see more of this because the more and more we study, the more we find is going on, and it scares me that they found that Lyme can trigger osteoporosis. And it's now at least six years later and no one's followed up on this yet. So hopefully somebody listening is a researcher and will start going down that path a little bit. But I think the idea being here is if you get infected, we know the number one thing, Kevin, is to get early diagnosis, early treatment. And if you're in an, in an area where there's a, a decent amount of Lyme, it's probably, um, you know, I never like to give general re medical recommendations without knowing the specifics, but it's probably better to get a course of treatment to be sure, because the long-term potential side effects from three, two or three weeks of an antibiotic are present, but the long-term potential impact on your overall health and specifically your bone health, if you're not getting treated for Lyme could be much more significant um, than a short course of treatment to prevent that. With Lyme, I know there is a connection to other conditions. So maybe we can talk about MCAS as well. And before yep. we do that, can you talk about the connection, but kind of tee up what is MCAS and what's the connection there? Yeah. So MCAS is an acronym for mast cell activation syndrome. And just so 
we don't want to have to keep saying mast cell activation syndrome all day long. And essentially mast cells are one of your white blood cells. So they're kind of within the immune system. They're one of the sentinels, right? So your mast cells are cruising around. They're going, Hey, that over there or that over there, that is, is that friend or foe? Well, and if it's kind of not me, is it bad or is it okay? Right. And so the thing with mast cell activation, if you hear a lot of people with chronic illness, whether they've had a mold exposure, whether they've had chronic mycoplasma, where it went from your lungs to your body, leading to some of these joint pains or like a persistence of Lyme or Babesia. The problem is these mast cells start to go, they're on guard all the time and they never get a break. So just like us, if we're constantly under stress or constantly being asked to do something at home or work. We're just kind of like, uh, uh, you know, and you get freaked out. And so a lot of us will get mad in our lot. So it, it, you know, and others of us will just kind of be like, get more anxious, more twitchy. And so these kind of without a rest, get more twitchy. And then they start to view everything or more things, more and more things as a foe because they don't get their time off. They don't get a vacation. And so what we see when we have a persistence of Lyme disease or the other big trigger or, or any of the tick-borne illness can trigger, or the other one is a mold exposure in your environment. Those are things that trigger the mast cells to be on more and more. So when this happens, they, they, people become hypersensitive to things. They start to, instead of having like an avert, you know, a problem eating dairy and gluten, they have a problem eating like 45 or 62 or 97 different foods. So we're not allergic to air typically. So when you start to have more and more sensitivity to that or more environmental smells are bothering you or everybody around you is, is setting you off, even like the most mellow person, they say one thing to you, you're going off the edge. That can be part of the mast cell activation syndrome or MCAS. And it's really that hyper sensitivity to what's going on in your environment because your body's trying to protect you. It's not that it's broken. It's just that it's starting to view everything as a potential threat. And a lot of healing has to do with, do you feel safe? Right? So when we look at the nervous system, most people have heard of fight or flight, right? And that's your sympathetic nervous system that like you're driving down the road, a little puppy or a kid runs in your front of your car, you slam on the brakes, you do evasive maneuver and you get out of the way, but your heart's going like this, your pupils are blown out and you're sweating your butt off, right? Then you go, and it's over, right? Takes you a couple of minutes, but you calm down. You didn't run the puppy over um, and everything's good. The problem though, is a lot of times what happens is we end up in chronic fight or flight and then but, but the thing about fight or flight is in both of those scenarios, like I always talk about the saber tooth tiger, right? I, I don't know. I like saber tooth tigers. So you and I, and a couple of our friends are sitting around campfire and we're hanging out and we're in parasympathetic mode, which allows us to heal. It allows us to put down more bone. It allows us to assimilate the nutrients that we're consuming, you know, cause I know that you're huge on, like, I get recipes from you all the time that we use in our own home and everything, but we're, we're, we want to be able to assimilate that, right? We want to take supplements that help strengthen our bones, help strengthen our immune system, help brain detoxification, but we want to be able to absorb it. That's parasympathetic. So joy, gratitude, hanging out with our friends, sleeping comfortably and deeply, you know, and, and this is really that um, sort of the, the rest and digest set of the nervous system. You can only do that if you feel safe. So we're all hanging around the fire and we feel safe. We're, we're, we're goofing around, smiling and laughing. And then the saber-toothed tiger shows up. Well, the issue now is I go, holy crap, in an instant, I have two choices. I can run away. And if I start running, I, I my nervous system believes that I can get away. Or if I turn and fight the saber-toothed tiger, my nervous system believes I have a chance to win. But then what happens is the saber-toothed tiger grabs me in his mouth because I was the guy sitting close to where he pounced, you know? Well, if you, if you fast forward to kind of more modern times, many of us have probably seen a, a mouse or a chipmunk running away from a cat outside. Cat grabs it. What's the first thing it does, right? It freezes because in that moment, it went from I can scamper away to I have no chance to win. And when you think you can't win, you freeze. And 
you know, and you withdraw socially, your immune system gets suppressed. You don't interact and you divert your eyes. And so this really suppresses your immune system. It suppresses your GI tract and the absorbability. But for the mouse, it's a good strategy because a lot of times the cat, cat or hopefully if the saber-toothed tiger grabbed me, it would work too. But, you know, it gets bored and it drops it and spits it out because it thinks it's dead. And then it's like, oh, I'll get it later. And then the thing runs off and the cat's looking over there. And, and that is a strategy for survival. So if we look at this in human terms, when, when, when we have like the pandemic and we all get isolated, isolation comes from feeling like you can't win, but being isolated makes you think you can't win from a nervous system perspective. So it's a double-edged sword, you know? And so in this freeze state of our nervous system, we, we can't win and we can't heal. So our goal is to kind of try to get out of that, right? And the, so a lot of my patients, and if any of you folks listening, I've talked to someone who's had a chronic infection, they'll be getting better and better and better. And they're starting to feel really good. And then all of a sudden they crash. And then, then this happens to them repeatedly. And then you start talking to other people like, oh, they just have an illness mentality, they have a sickness mentality. They love the label of Lyme and they don't want to get better. And I call BS on most of that because really what's happening is your nervous system is trying to protect you. And the, the part of getting out of this place of feeling frozen, Kevin, is that we need to give, if you go too far, your, bot, your nervous system actually thinks you're not safe anymore. So it's kind of like your comfort zone. If you're in your comfort zone, even if your comfort zone, because your nervous system just wants to pass, your reptilian nervous system just wants to pass on your DNA. And so it doesn't care if you feel good or not. It just cares if you're alive. So if you want to get into the state of optimal health, we need to allow our body to push its comfort zone a little bit, but not so much that it freaks out your nervous system. So a lot of what I found is people who change very rapidly get bungee corded right back to where they were. And then the people around them are like, oh, you have that illness mentality. And that just re-traumatizes them and gets them stuck into this loop. So if we can dose our improvements so that we can create a new set point of comfort zone, and then we, we have this new, so we went from here to here, and then we can go to the next place, then people can actually slowly but surely heal. So you can actually heal too quickly from a chronic state that would actually self, accidentally self-sabotage you because your nervous system trying to just keep you alive. So I always tell people, your nervous system was on your side 100% of the time. Your body's doing the best it can because a lot of people with chronic illness are like, oh, no, 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 my body's giving out on me. It's betraying me. I'm like, it's not. You just have to understand how it works. So in an acute setting, beat the crap out of the infection, prevent chronic infection. You're not used to being sick, but once you're sick and you, you've been used to it, then you just kind of have to work a little bit different and not doing any work or doing too much work is going to actually accidentally slow down your progress. You really know how to have to know how to, to dose the improvement. What is the most important work? that someone needs to be doing if they're trying to heal from MCAS, Lyme, mycotoxins, other env uh, environmentally acquired illnesses? What are, what are the most important things we need to be doing? I think the most important number one, well, I think they're, yeah, no, the most important number one, I was gonna say there's a tie, but the number one thing is really work on calming your nervous system down so that you can get out of that state of being frozen and people go back and forth between fight, flight, and freeze. It's not like you're stuck there permanently, but you'll be going back and forth. But we need to work on allowing your nervous system to recognize it's safe. And there's very simple ways to do that. And I would say that across the board, um, some of my friends who are kind of their whole practice is mast cell activation and calming that down. That's their number one. If you look at the mold gurus, that's their number one. If you look at the Lyme people, that's their number one. And because all of us treat all of it. But really across the board, myself, my colleagues, my mentors, calming the nervous system down is number one. And I, the thing I was going to say is kind of tied is to actually get a real diagnosis, get a proper diagnosis from an expert who does this exclusively. So you're sure, because like, you know, like people who come to you and do your work with you is like, if you're working on your, you know, gluten and that's not your problem and your thyroid or your vitamin D or whatever it is, is your problem. It's like, it's kind of hard to get better if you're actually like not working on the thing that's making you sick, but across the board, right? No matter what's going on in your life, 
allowing your nervous system to calm down is going to help you in all aspects. And I always say I was 70% better, or maybe even 80% before I met the doctors that I could help me with the last bit. All of that was mindset and breath work and yoga work. It was me doing the work. And to me, that's harnessing the power of placebo, right? Or the mind over matter part of medicine. And it's so powerful that even the conventional medical docs feel that that's at least 33% of all medical outcomes. I'm like, okay, so I can take a cholesterol lowering medication that will work 42, will bring my cholesterol down 42%, or I can take a placebo that will bring it down 33%. And there's only like that little bit in there of, of that, like that nine extra percentage points is going to change it. I'm like, I want to harness the 33% first, personally, because I'm in control of that. And I like to bring the control. And a lot of my Lyme people are looking for an answer out here. And I'm sure a lot about people with osteoporosis, like, what can I take? I'm like, bring it back in here so you can optimize. Because when you bring it back inside and you, and, and you take back control of your health and you calm your nervous system, to me, calming your nervous system also means your gut functions better. So we improve dysbiosis just by not stressing out that gut reaction we all have. Then that means our immune system is boosted. Whenever I calm my nervous system down and maybe I add a little bit of gratitude, I can improve my heart rate variability, which is a fancy way of just saying how optimally your heart's beating and how it interacts with the rest of your body. So it improves stress resilience, inf you know, infection resilience, immune system function, and it, and, and it literally is an anti-aging drug if you just allow yourself to calm down. And I'm like, so this is going to benefit all aspects of your health and specifically mast cell activation and persistent Lyme. That's great. Are there any other core components of healing for these, these toxin-induced autoimmunity? Yeah. I mean, I, I think the big thing is like when you take back control, um, you know, you're more objective at what you really need. Right. And so you stop looking outside for all of it. And when you work with a practitioner who's skilled in this, I think the big things to know are that in an acute setting, you probably should be looking for antibiotics as well as herbs, at least in a Lyme setting. But in a chronic state, I found that people get better more quickly by focusing on the mindset stuff and their emotions, their nervous system, focusing on what you're putting into your mouth and what you're eating and what you're thinking about. And then the big thing is a lot of the herbs and natural approaches are actually being studied right now in these chronic infections. And they work on what we call persister forms. And those persister forms are, the, are what they sound like. They're ways that it allows these, these different bacteria and parasites to persist in your body over time and evade the immune system. And so the herbs that we've studied are actually more effective at, with the best science we have as of today, more effective than pretty much any antibiotic combination that we know of at getting at the persisters. So if you're chronically sick, by definition, you've got persisters. So I actually recommend people work on the natural treatment approaches because they've been shown in studies and clinically to work more effectively. And then if you need to add the antibiotics or some other kind of conventional treatment on later on, you can do that and it's actually more effective. And then you have, you have less toxic exposure to the medicine. And then you're kind of going, hey, like a short course of antibiotic might not be that bad. Long course might not be that good. And so if you do the groundwork and the beauty of that is you can do all that work on your own or you can work in a program like we have or work with a provider, but you don't have to be taking these, you know, plants are so um, intelligent, right? And they do, they have multiple positive benefits and very, and, and as long as you don't go crazy, not a lot of negative side effects, which their profile for safety and healing is much better than a lot of the medicines. And then you just give the medicine as you need it, right? And so that's really one of the big things I would do is like, you always working on your, your nervous system and your mind so that you can optimize your health and your gratitude so that, you know, they, the, the, the healing is in the living, right? You don't wait till, till you get all better to go live your life. That's what got me better. I was like, damn, I'm doing that. I don't even know if I can make it, but it's way better than that. So I just chose to double down on me and immediately you can even see, like, I get all excited when I say that, right? It's like, so it's like when you feel that that boosts up your immune system and then you start doing the, the herbs and the natural treatments that you can do at home. And then if you need to get some specific medicine to kind of round it out, to be icing on the cake, you can do that. So 
I think most people understand by now that this is a condition. Lyme disease is definitely a condition or, or MCAS, or, you know, when you're working with mold, you work with a practitioner for this, you, you develop a specific protocol. Uh, so I think we all understand that. I'm actually curious for the herbs, what are some of these herbs and what's maybe some of the research behind that? Yeah, it, it's awesome. You know, it's funny when I got started, it was like a lot of antibiotics. Then people started to make formulas, right? Combine a couple of things based on, I think it's going to work. And then it was kind of like throw stuff at the wall and see what would stick. And if it stuck for Lyme, we put Lyme in the, in the name. And if it stuck for Babesia, we put Babesia in the name. And then in the last five or six years, there's been a lot of research. And so we found that for Lyme disease and another co-infection called uh, Bartonella henselae, that may come from a tick, but it also can come from lice and fleas, spider bites. And a lot of people know it as cat scratch. So don't worry. It's just something that we commonly will see in the same patient population. But we found the research showed that cryptolepis, which is an herb, scutellaria bicolensis, which is most people know as Chinese skull cap, Japanese knotweed, or the botanical name is polygonum cuspidatum, and then cat's claw, uncaria tomentosa, those are kind of our top four for both. And then Chinese skullcap and this cryptolepis also are, have been found to be very effective against Babesia duncani, which is one of those Babesias. So what's really nice is that, that cryptolepis actually is our number one, Kevin. It's like really like it's been shown to be better than doxycycline or cefuroxime, which are two of our mainstay medications we use. And it's been shown, it is one of only two things I've ever seen studied that eradicate the, the persister forms to the point where they're like, they never regrow. Everything else has a little bit of regrowth. So cryptolepis is really like our number one. And then these other ones are so potent across the persisters. And there are other herbs too, but there are top four. So cryptolepis, Chinese skullcap, Japanese knotweed, and cat's claw, kind of in that order. And... But it's amazing because these are things that like we coach people on all the time and they can use with guidance, but they don't have to necessarily wait in line like, you know, for some Lyme specialist for three years to get off their waiting list. They can work with guidance in a coaching program where they can pick up on their own and can, can safely use, which is so cool. And so even in my acute people or tick bite, you know, they get a tick bite and they want to prevent Lyme, we might use an antibiotic, but I'm doing like cryptolepis and, and Chinese skullcap along with my medicines so that we can double down on prevention of long-term illness and things like, you know, Lyme induced bone loss. Cause God, I mean, we have enough other things that could induce bone loss. We don't, we don't need to have another infection floating around our body. I know. No. And, and I want to make sure we're going to tell people where they can find you. And, you know, you've got this amazing program too, not just for individual patients, but also practitioners as well. So we're going to tell them about that and uh, where they can find that in just a minute. I do have one other question. I'm wondering, yeah, yeah, yeah. is there, what, what role do genetics play in susceptibility to these conditions? And if at all, and then if you have any of these conditions, you know, like Lyme disease, are family members uh, affected at or risk. risk or anything either? Yeah. So, um, the long and the short in genetics, we're not sure. There are some human leukocyte antigen or HLA genes that appear to put you at more risk for just being susceptible to chronic illness, but about 24% of the population have it. I've stopped testing because everybody in my patient population always came back positive for something. And I'm like, so you're sick and maybe you had a predisposition, but you're already sick. So it didn't change what I did. I am working with a group where we're actually um, beta testing, they, they, they do a lot of genetic work for other things like ADHD, pans and pandas, mental health. Um, that's very evidence-based. We're in the process of working through our, is the, the small amount of research online out there. Can we make that clinically useful? So maybe we'll have in another year or two, we'll have some more information to share with you and your audience. But, but right now it's kind of like, it looks like it's more like it, it depends on two things like the virulence of what you get bit with. So meaning, did you just get like that bit with normal spire, you know, a tick that gave you normal spirochete and you have kind of normal, what everybody thinks of as Lyme, or did you get those persisters injected at the time of tick bite? And now you're kind of like, you've got that early persistence of Lyme. Those are probably most of the people that I see. 
uh, based upon my experience. And then the, the question of, and, and, and I think the, the question of transmission is important to the, as it pertains to the family member, right? So we know that almost all Lyme is being transmitted by a tick bite. You can find Lyme spirochetes in mosquitoes. There is no known way of transmission. People keep talking about mosquitoes. It, it, it's not a place to focus. Now, prevent yourself from getting a mosquito bite for other reasons, but focus on ticks, right? The other thing is we can find it in breast milk, but we have no confirmation of moms transmitting it to their baby through breast milk. We can find it in semen and on the cervix. There's no tra uh, confirmed transmission sexually between partners. However, um, this is an ongoing debate. It probably happens a little bit like sexual transmission. So if you're in the throes of it, we've all seen people one or two where partners seem to both one's really sick and they get better and they get sicker. And then the partner has like a little ick and pain. And then they put on a barrier method when they have intercourse and then that gets better. Right. And then they're both able to get better. But we have people have tried so hard to confirm sexual transmission. And despite having a confirmation bias to yes, it is they have not been able to do it. So most experts, including myself, say it's possible, but not probable. And then the other one where we know there's transmission is mom to their baby. So I, as a family practitioner who studied with Charles Ray Jones, so if anybody looks in the Lyme, he's kind of like, it was a pioneering Lyme guru from the 60s and 70s, and he died last year at 93, still treating kids until like two months before he passed. He was that passionate. You know, we know there's confirmation of transmission from mom to their baby. Very, 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 very uncommon, but it but it has been proven so that it happens once in a while. So in terms of like kissing or sharing a toothbrush or sitting on the same toilet or hanging out on the couch, there's no risk that we're aware of with the best science we have. Um, so it really is a tick bite or a mom to baby are, are confirmed ways to go. And really it's 99.97% or more. It's a tick bite. Now, one last piece on that, cause I know we're, I'm going off on this topic here for you, but is a lot of times multiple family members will have it and they're like, Oh, I see we're giving it back and forth. Well, what are other things that families do? Well, they go do things. They hang out in the same environment together. And if you're, 75% of people will get Lyme in their backyard or their friend's backyard or the park. It's considered paradomestic. It's not going off and hiking in the woods like I always do. It's right in your yard. So we have information on our website on how to modify your yard to minimize that, how to decrease your risk of getting a tick bite if you are outside. But the bottom line is it's your share, your, you and your family are sharing similar environments and doing similar things. And that's most likely why family members think they're passing it back and forth. And then obviously a fluke can happen, but like just focus on your yard, focus on tick bite prevention, and you'll probably dr dramatically reduce your risk. And if I can say one other thing, I just thought of a thing that your people might really like. There's a thing called permethrin. And if it's wet, it's toxic to aquatic wildlife and plants. And we do use it topically on people in a cream form for scabies, but you don't want to be put in your eyes or anything. But when it's dry, it's non-toxic. If you spray your shoes and socks, there's studies showing you have over a 70% reduction in the number of ticks in your body just by spraying permethrin, letting it dry, and wearing permethrin-covered shoes and socks. So if you want a low, low, low-hanging fruit, grab some of this in your favorite online retailer or your local hardware store and, and apply the permethrin because once it's dry, it's non-toxic. And a 70% reduction in ticks on your body is pretty dramatic. And you don't, there's more things to do, but that's like super easy, super decrease in the risk. Dr. Tom Moorcroft, this was a fascinating episode. Really, really interesting. You are a true expert in your field. I would love for you to share where can people find you and just a high level of your programs if you want to share that before we close this. Thank up. you very much. Yeah. Our private medical practice is at Origins of Health. You can .com. Uh, you can head over there, check out what we do. Any questions, it's easy to reach out. Um, if anybody's interested in working with myself or some of the providers on our team, you can apply right there. And you can pretty much find us on social all over the place, you know, with Origins of Health and, and a lot of stuff. And then our program, um, the Thrive with Lyme Blueprint, is really our three-step process that I use to heal myself 
and we do group coaching with people to really like, maybe they can't get out to see me. Maybe they have a good provider, but they want to, they, they want to learn what are the nuances of doing this for over 15 years and having a, essentially a 12 year plight in my own his, health. And it really boils down. How do you supercharge your outcomes and get that self-healing mechanism back on track? Make sure you have the right testing, make sure you're doing the right treatment and then having a place where you have community. Cause that was the thing when I sat down with those people in their offices, doctors, and I saw all these other people were like, man, I'm like, finally, after eight years, I found other people who were like me and I no longer felt like an outcast. So I love really that community aspect. And so, and for, for, for your audience, we just, if they want to head over to tommorcroft.com slash bone coach, uh, we'll have a bunch of resources, information on the Thrive With Line blueprint, but really, I mean, you've done such a great job serving your community and, you know, we've been friends for a while and I just love all the help you've provided me. So I want to really be able to give back to your community to an extra level because I really appreciate, you know, I, and anybody who wants to step up and do what you're doing, Kevin, and change it, disrupting and really sharing the truth of how to heal from these chronic conditions uh, you know, I want to support you and your people as much as you've always supported me. So as a way of saying, thank you, just head over to tomworkoff.com slash bone coach, and we'll give you lots of love. Dr. Tom, appreciate you. You're, you're a, a great man on a great mission. And for everybody listening, uh, you can find all the resources, show notes, everything mentioned here today at bonecoach.com. We'll leave the link to this specific episode in the show notes. I want to thank you again so much for your time. We'll see you in the next episode. Hope you found this episode of the Bone Coach Show helpful. You can find all the resources, show notes, everything mentioned over at bonecoach.com. If you enjoyed this episode and found it helpful, be sure to share it with someone you love, a friend, family member, even a group of people. And also be sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode that can help you improve your bones, your health, and your future. One last reminder, if you haven't done so already, head over to bonecoach.com for more great resources to help you get on the path to stronger bones and an active future. I'm your bone coach, Kevin Ellis. I'll see you in the next episode.